This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Pathologicalization. There we go. That's what we're talking about today. My name is Alex, I use they, Z pronouns, and this is Stride with Pride. Hello and welcome back to Stride with Pride. I hope you've had a fantastic however long it's been since you listened to the last episode. Like I said, this week's episode we're going to focus on pathologicalization, which is a word that is very hard to say, um but also can be referred to as medicalization. Um, And we're sort of talking about it through the lens of one of the readings I had to do for university, um, which I now want to read the entire textbook because it sounds really cool and is actually written really well and inclusively. And in the dedication at the start, it says, in memory of Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, um, which is very cool. We love to see it as they should. If you don't remember why these people are important, go check out the Importance of Pride episode I did. Um, They were sort of instrumental to the start of the queer rights movement in America and also Stonewall Riots. So go check them out. The book is called An Introduction to Transgender Studies by Adele Hayfell Thomas. Um, And it, you know, discusses a bunch of stuff to do with trans issues and stuff like that. Um, and this chapter focused specifically on um, sexology, um, which is the study of sex and different ways of engaging with that, but it also includes um, gender identity under that. But we'll get to that because um, there's a whole whole big history of that. Um, but just as a warning, there is um, some uh, transphobic ideals um, and just queerphobic ideals in some of the original people's work. Um, so if you feel like that might not be something you want to hear, feel free to click away from this um, and listen to something else Um, because I don't want you to hurt yourself. So be kind to yourself. Do what's best for you. For those who don't know, pathologicalization refers to the turning something into something that is medical or a disease, saying that something is an illness that needs to be cured. So in this case, saying that queerness is a bad thing that is an illness and needs to be cured. And so medicalization is also, it's when you medicalize something, you turn something into an illness, a disorder, an ailment, um, basically the same thing, um, just the idea that it's a bad thing that needs to be cured and can be cured rather than is just something that is there and is not good nor bad. It's just a thing. It's diversity. Wow. The chapter we're looking at is chapter three. Um, and it starts this little history journey. We start this history journey um, by talking about the early sexologists um, who were 
from the European Enlightenment sort of movement, um, societal thing. Um, and this is sort of where the transition began from viewing things um, from religious sin to medical illness. And they went and went a lot of places. They went through a lot of cultures and went to observe a bunch of people to see how they did things um, and how they were and how they existed. Um, but the thing is, they were not viewing them as outside apart, uh, as, you know, oh, look how this culture does that. That's interesting. This is one of the many broad, diverse ways of being human. No, they were like, oh, that's different to us. Um, that's not normal to what we do, so it's bad and wrong, and it must be fixed. Um, and we're going to categorize that as a disease now. Is that cool by you? They didn't ask that, they just did it. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, they, they engaged with cultures that had different versions of gender identity and more fluid versions of, and ways of seeing it than, you know, Europe did at the time, which was very rigid and binary. Haha, <laughs> yay. Um... But, yeah, no, they saw other cultures doing it, um, you know, differently than them. And they were like, ooh, bad, wrong, can't exist, mm -mm, is an illness. Um, so they still had these biases from the religion. But instead of labeling it as sin, they just labeled it as an illness. And even in this original, like, sexology stuff, it was like even different types of heterosexual sex was seen as bad so you know doing it anything other than stereotypical penis and vagina sex for procreation anything that wasn't that was bad bad and wrong so a good way to start so our first key figure in this um and and stuff specifically to do with queer things um is richard von kraft ebbing um who wrote a book um, called Psychopathia Sexualis, which um, he says at the start of this book, um, the purpose of this treatise is the description of the pathological manifestations of the sexual life in an attempt to refer them to their underlying conditions. Um, so categorizing everything that isn't quote-unquote normal as a condition, a medical condition. That can be cured. So this was originally published in um, his native German in 1877, um, and then in English in 1886. Um, and but because it was sort of meant for professionals who were going to be dealing with this, um, sort of like you know the DSM talks about it in very clinical language. Um, it was all with very inaccessible language because it was only it's supposed to be for the highly educated um and you know whenever he discussed genital measurements and certain sexual behaviors he would switch to latin um because this was um what was used in legal systems and in um sciences um and it also um made sure that the public couldn't get hold of the saucy information, you know, stuff that might be useful for them, you know, that there are other people like them. Couldn't be important, needs to be in Latin because they should never find out about it. Uh, yay. <laughs> As a note, um, only the highly educated um, had access to learning Latin. Um, so it was very much not for the lay people of the time. 
Yeah, so he had three main um, sets of ideas in his thing, in his book. Um, so this was uh, the model for normal was heterosexual, um, and he helped develop this term and as it is understood today, um, and that heterosexuality had to be focused on sex for procreation, not sex for pleasure, and that any sort of sexual desire, fantasy, or activity that was not heterosexual and procreative um, was not only normal, but manifestation of a disease. So most of his writings was about heterosexual sex that was a disease or, you know, a bad thing. Um, and in his work, specifically relating to us and these topics, um, he viewed sexual orientation and gender identity or gender expression, differentiations of this from the norm and the binaries and heteronormativity as the same thing. He basically lumped it all together as bad and wrong. Um, and he just classified what we call trans identity now um, as just the worst form of homosexuality. Um, but he didn't use this at the time. But, you know, yay! He also used the word earning, U-R-N-I-N-G, um, to refer to at gay men in his work. But yeah, he basically just saw everything through a disease framework. But moving on from him, so John Addington Simmons, who was not a sexologist, but he was a gay man, and a poet and a philosopher, saw this work. He was, um, you know, educated enough to be able to understand it and be able to read it. And he read this and he was super angry um, because, um, you know, because Richard von Kraft Ebbing um, had, you know, said that the people who were earning, um, so gay men, were neurotic because they were this category of people. Um, so that was just a feature of being that. Um, but then John Addington Simmons was just like, no, dude, we're like this because society treats us trash and less than human. Um, so he wrote that letter to him. Um, but, you know, we don't know if he responded to it or anything. But, um, you know, he did. Uh, Richard von Kraft Ebbing included um, John in... The, his next version um, as a case study. And now we get to Magnus Hirschfeld, who is super cool. He was a gay Jewish man who, um, you know, he, he studied under Richard von Kraft Ebbing um, and was in the field of sexology as well. But he wanted to be able to do science um, in a way that uh, made it a vehicle to make everyone equal. Um, and so he rejected the notions of races being superior to others um, and also rejected the idea that any gender or identity or sexual orientation should be held above another. So he openly advocated for trans and gay people in Germany and throughout Europe. Um, and he established um, what is referred to in English as the Institute for Sexual Research or the Institute for Sexology in Berlin, um, which was the first institute of its kind in the world. Um, and he established this in 1919. Um, and so this attracted people from all around the world who wanted to know more and study sexology and the science about it and just knowing more about people in this way. Um, and it became a safe place for people seeking advice and for issues regarding sexual 
orientation, sex, and gender identity. It was sort of a safe haven for that. He wasn't there to demonize these people. He was super for their rights, you know. And he had what we call a patient-centered approach. So listening to his patients without judgment um, and placing the emphasis in the treatment on how the patients felt about and experienced their own conditions rather than telling them this is what will make you feel better because you're diseased. So this institute was an amazing thing. Um, However, in Germany in 1933, a lot of big stuff going on. Yeah, the the Nazis didn't like it, so they burnt um, down the institute. They burnt it down. Yay! (sighs) But a lot of his work um, was sort of the foundations of um, the ideas we think of today with fluidity of sexuality, um, as well as um, the precursors to um, expression, gender expression, sexual fluidity, the continuum of sexual orientation, as well as gender identity stuff as well. He also really cool, worked with um, the police authorities in Berlin to make sure that trans women, um, whom he called transvestites, so he sort of, he's thought to have coined the term transvestite, um, so he worked with the police to give them identification cards um, so they wouldn't be arrested for breaking Berlin's anti-cross-dressing laws because they weren't cross-dressing if they were women, which is really friggin' cool. Especially because this was in the 1920s and 30s. As a quick side note, uh, transvestite is a archaic term um, now. Um, it is still used by some people, but generally not advised uh, to use it unless a person actively identifies with this term. So then we get Harry Benjamin, who was is often considered the pioneer of transsexual studies. Um, so he wrote a book in 1966, it came out, um, called The Transsexual Phenomenon, um, which uh, he was basically the first person widely known because, um, you know, Magnus Hirschfeld said some stuff about it, but um, a lot of his work is still being found today because, um, you know, the library burned down. Um but he, Harry Benjamin, wrote this book um, and is arguably the first person to say that gender identity and sexual orientation are not the same. Um, and they shouldn't be treated the same. And this was the first um, sort of book that was written that was accessible to the public, to people on the street, because it was available to in, in public libraries for anyone to read, which, you know, is so important that we get to see ourselves. Oh my gosh, you know? Um, so, you know, that was super, super important to be able to read it without a Latin translator like you would need for Psychopathia Sexualis um, by Kraft Ebbing. Um, and yeah, no, this, so this was the first time when lay people began to see, like, wow, we're not crazy or weird this is just how some people are and there are more of us there's there's more people like us um which this was life-changing for a lot of people and this began the idea of sexual sex reassignment surgery what we refer to now as gender confirmation or gender affirmation surgery um but was referred to at the time as sex reassignment surgery 
And so the process of being able to medically change parts of your body to affirm your gender actually became like a a thing that could exist, um, which gave a lot of people a lot of hope and was groundbreaking for a lot of people. And he sort of um, published this how-to guide, um, a book on gender affirmation surgery, um, using the term sex reassignment surgery, um, to open up this field of surgery. Um, And he came up with a common code of ethics. Um, And so the Harry Benjamin standards of care um, became a healthcare standard for trans people. Um, And there's lots of editions of this because issues have changed and evolved over time. Um, But, you know, he made this be a thing. And so, you know, we see in history that um, because of this medicalization and pathologization of transness, of gender identity and of sexuality, um, gender dysphoria was listed as a mental disorder in the DSM. Um, For those who don't know, it's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, um, which is the book that psychologists use to diagnose people with mental problems and stuff. Um, And gender dysphoria was listed in there, and you had to, in a lot of places... um, for a long time get a diagnosis with this to be able to get on hormones and get surgery um so you had to like basically prove that you were trans enough to be considered trans enough to get these hormones and stuff it's sort of a catch-22 because it's like you need to be sane enough to get these hormones and the surgery but you have to prove that you're quote-unquote insane enough to want to get them in the first place um oh yay we love it um and it is still in there in the current version um but you know it has tried to counteract some of the uh stigma to do with it and recategorize it but um in some places it is still used as a requirement um yeah yay you still have to prove that you are trans enough but um it is lessening and becoming slightly easier in New Zealand but yeah it's it's a whole thing go go check out the episode on um medical transition for more information on that um oh it's a whole thing <laughs> but yeah so treating it as a mental disorder is wow not the best thing um it's just a facet of human being diversity. Wow. A concept, you know. This is not to diminish the impact and, like, really positive impacts of getting medical treatment, um, so hormones and surgery and things like that. Um, all of that can be really important for trans people. But saying that all people that have gender dysphoria are mentally ill because of that... Um, carry some stigma um which we don't like just destigmatize mental illness in general so we've also seen a number of queer people in on this field as well obviously in the progression of queer rights um (laughs) so one of these is lewis or louis graydon sullivan um 
who we'll refer to as Lou. Um, and Lou was a trans dude. Um, he knew this quite early on. He referred to himself as a boy. Um, and he, you know, was applying to clinics so that he could have gender affirmation surgery. And he did a lot of work on you know, advocating for trans people. Um, he wrote numerous articles focusing on female to male transsexuals um, and started the world's first organization um, to work exclusively with trans men um, called FTM. Um, so eventually, long after um, he applied to get gender affirmation surgery in 1986, he was finally able to get it, um, but was diagnosed with AIDS shortly after, which was devastating for our community. But one of the most progressive sexologists um, in sort of this field in history um, was Dr. Lee Yin-hee, who was a super cool, outspoken sexologist, feminist, and trans advocate throughout China. Um... Which was really dangerous for her to be doing that in China. But she still did it. She still did it. Um, and oh, she, she was super cool. She had a trans husband um, and did so much work trying to break down the concepts of heteronormativity and traditional heterosexual nuclear families and all of the kind of pressures around that. And she also advocated for the decriminalization of sex work, pornography and other sexual issues that the Chinese government still viewed as illegal and or immoral. Um, but she's super cool. Please do more research on her because she's amazing. Next up, we have Christine McGinn, who is a trans woman, lesbian, who is a former Navy surgeon who has opened up her own gender wellness clinic. Um, so during her own gender affirmation surgery, there was a lot of um, mistreatment um, of trans people and it's a, it was a very degrading process and there's a lot of hoops you have to jump through and you have to prove yourself. It's a whole thing. So she, along with her wife, run the Papillon Gender Wellness Center in New Hope, Pennsylvania. And Papillon, um, for those who don't know, is French for butterfly. So um, it's like you're turning into a beautiful butterfly. So that's your, your true self. You're turning into your fully fledged, wonderful, amazing version of yourself. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, so um, they are dedicated to making transition and just gender affirmation things in general and healthcare like better for trans and non-binary people anyone anywhere on the gender spectrum to receive the help and services and they also work with other healthcare providers um and teaching them how to treat trans people with dignity wow <laughs> a, a wild concept i know but yeah this has been a briefer not so brief rundown of the history of how we as queer people have been pathologized and medicalized how we've gone from being seen as sinful and bad to being medically ill and wrong and a disease to be cured um to uh you know just like a little different than some people than the norm well at least that's hopefully the medical perspective more 
nowadays, but you still you still have to jump through a lot of hoops for surgeries and stuff. It's a it's the whole thing. <laughs> but yeah, like being pathologized has led to many many interesting effects on our community. Um, whether that's to you know being sexualized, and I'm going to do a whole episode on sexualization because that's a whole a whole can of worms. But you know, it's it's important to know this history of pathologization because we can see where we need to go from here. And, you know, we still have so many medical rights that we need to fight for. And it can be easy to lose sight of that sometimes. So it's just good to remember these things um, and to learn a bit of our history and how we've been oppressed. Um, but it lets us know where we can move forward and where we've done work before so things have gotten better before and we can continue to keep making them better for this week's creator spotlight i am going to shout out jessica calgren fozard i feel like i've shouted her out before but if i have i don't care she's amazing you should go watch her anyway um because she's cool I'm going to mention her as many times as I like. Um, <laughs> but um, she is a wonderful disabled queer educator and she makes really cute content with her wife um, as well as like queer history educational videos um, and disability education videos. Just a bunch of wonderful stuff in general. Um, and you should totally go check her out. She's a YouTuber. Um, it's Jessica. And then Kelgren, which is K-E-L-L-G-R-E-N hyphen Fozard, F-O-Z-A-R-D. Go check her out. She's really wonderful and lovely and I love her content. It's so wholesome. It's so sweet. It's so sweet. As a mini announcement, I guess... Um, I am going to be taking a brief hiatus um, from putting out episodes. Uni exists. Um, <laughs> and I want to be able to make wonderful content for you guys and be able to research and have time to do that. Um, and so I'm taking a little break um, and I will be back when I am back. <laughs> but in the meantime... Remember that you are a wonderful, amazing person. You are so deeply, deeply loved and valued so much for every single part of you. You are loved because of who you are, not in spite of it. And you matter. You matter so much. Even if you feel like you don't, you matter to someone. And maybe that someone is me. Don't forget to spread your joy. And I'll talk to you when I talk to you. See you next time. Bye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.